So if you've ever had the privilege of going to a famous museum, you're likely going there to see priceless pieces of art, right? But if you take the time to look around, you'll notice that there are all kinds of different people experiencing this in all kinds of different ways. There are some people who can really appreciate what they're looking at, and then there are a lot of people who are pretending to be like those people. I know that when I was in college, I, um, I thought that going to a museum was something that maybe other people would find interesting, which in my mind would then make me more interesting. And I'm guessing this is the same thing that's happening with people who are primarily there to get a picture that they can then put on social media so that they'll get more likes, right? Because then they'll be interesting. Uh, if you go to a modern art museum, you'll likely find some people, likely Americans, who will have this incredulous look on their face like, what the heck? Like, I could have done that, right? But they most certainly could not have done that. The most common type, however, is the exhausted traveler who believes that this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity or they believe that since they paid for the ticket, they have to see as much as they possibly can no matter how miserable it makes them. And then the last type of person you have are people like my kids who, when we first went to museums, ran through looking at priceless statues, pointing at them and saying, Dad, you can see their butts, right? Like, they're naked. Like, what's going on here? All kinds of different people looking at the same thing but coming away with different ideas of what it means and what the value of those things are. You see, as humans, this is one of our most unique qualities, our ability to make meaning out of objects and experiences. Just a few weeks ago in the story of 1 Samuel, we noticed that when the people lost in battle, they interpreted that experience to mean that God caused them to lose. They were making meaning out of their experience. We also looked at the Ark of the Covenant, which was a piece of art, a throne and a box. And when they placed um, certain objects inside of the Ark, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, and a jar of manna, this object took on new meaning. Now it was not just a piece of art, but it was the very presence of God, of a liberating, feeding, and loving God. But then they took that same object into battle, which changed the meaning meaning of it entirely. Now, God wasn't just a liberating, feeding, and loving God. Now, God was a warrior who was on our side against those people. So, the people go out and they lose again, even with God in their midst, And even worse, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and take it back with them, which means that God has lost and that God has been captured. So let's see what happens next in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Once the Philistines had seized the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it alongside the idol or the statue of Dagon. So here we have another piece of art that isn't just a piece of art, but something that carries religious meaning for the Philistines. 
Now, the god Dagon in the ancient world was a half-man, half-fish god, which makes sense because the location of the temple was right there along the Mediterranean Sea. So their primary god was one who supports and sustains the people and their way of life. Like, it makes sense. But when the Philistines placed the Ark of God into Dagon's temple, they add another layer of meaning. Now Dagon is also a warrior god who has defeated and captured the god of Israel. So the next morning when the people come to the temple, they expect to see and to celebrate their victory and the victory of their god. So continuing in verse 3. The next morning when the citizens of Ashdod got up, they were shocked to find Dagon toppled from his place, flat on his face before the ark of God. They picked him up and put him back where he belonged. First thing the next morning, they found him again toppled and flat on his face before the ark of God. Dagon's head and arms were broken off, strewn across the entrance. Only his torso was in one piece. That's why even today, the priests of Dagon and visitors to Dagon's temple in Ashdod avoid stepping on the threshold or the entrance to the temple. So this is great. You have a captured god in a box and a statue of Dagon falling all on its own in front of another god, presumably, which is sort of like the sophisticated silence of a museum being broken by kids or adults giggling at naked statues, right? Each object is treated with so much reverence and so much value. The Ark of God and the, the idol of Dagon is just such a serious experience. Religion is such a serious experience, but in war between two peoples and between two gods, both of them and both of their gods end up looking really silly. So keep this in mind anytime we fight with other people over religion. Continuing in verse 6, the hand of God then was heavy upon the citizens of Ashdod. He devastated them by hitting them with tumors. This happened in both the town and the surrounding neighborhoods. He let loose rats among them, jumping from ships there. Rats swarmed all over the city, and everyone was deathly afraid. When the leaders of Ashdod saw what was going on, they said, the ark of God of Israel has got to go, obviously. So they moved it around a bit, but eventually they sent the ark back to the people of, of Israel. So... Notice how the Philistines are making meaning out of their experiences. First, the statue falls over and breaks. Now, it's not like the idol broke open with a note inside saying, mind the gap or don't trip over the entrance of the temple like I did, right? Like, the people had this experience and then they added superstition on top of it, that harm might come to somebody who steps on the threshold of the temple as they enter. Secondly, the people begin to get what is described as tumors, together with rats. Now, from a modern perspective, scholars believe that this was an outbreak of the plague. It makes sense, the plague, which would be carried by rats, 
But without that future science, they make meaning by blaming it on the God of Israel, who is present in the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark is moved around, and when you send a caravan of people and cargo away from a plague-infested city to other cities, it's not surprising that the plague just so happens to follow the Ark of God. Like That's sort of how plagues work. And surprise, surprise, some of the Israelites die too once the ark goes back to Israel, which they then interpret as punishment from God for their bad behavior. So those are the characters within the story making meaning out of their experiences. But there are other people involved. There are the people who are then telling this story in the Bible. These people who live hundreds of years in the future from when these events happened, the people retelling this story live in a different time and in a different place. Specifically, they are in exile in Babylon. They have been taken captive away from home. And they want this story to have meaning for their lives too. So instead of focusing primarily on historical accuracy as if the idol falling over was caught on camera, the story is told in a way that makes sense for their community in a different time and in a different place. So for a people in exile, you who have been defeated by their enemies, what does it mean that God also suffered defeat? For a people who have been captured and taken to a foreign land, what does it mean that God was also captured and also taken to a foreign land, away from home? The story is told in a way to help us see that God is still with us, even if it doesn't look like it. The story is told in a way to help us see that God is compassionate and understands what we're going through, no matter how hard or difficult it is. And the story is told because it gives people hope that perhaps this God, who is with them in defeat, is still powerful enough to bring them home at some point. So in a few chapters, when the ark does return home to Israel, the people can start dreaming again of a better future for themselves, which in the middle of their struggle keeps them from falling into despair. It helps them and it helps us to keep living and moving forward here because we are also making meaning of these stories for ourselves and for our community now. So what is important to notice about all of this is that meaning doesn't come to us fully formed from God or from life as if we have nothing to do with it. We go through life, things happen, and together with God and with our own communities, we each play a pretty big role in figuring out what it all means. Now, this doesn't mean that religion is made up. It just means that we're in the game instead of on the sideline. We're in the band rather than just listening. We're no longer just in the museum, exhausted and miserable, pretending to, to be somebody we're not. We're artists who are making meaning out of faith and life. We're engaged, we're a part of it. So how, how do you experience faith or life? How do you experience the Bible? 
Does it make you exhausted and miserable? Do you critically or confusingly say, what the heck is that? Have you ever pretended to understand what a pastor was saying, even if they were using words like sanctification and justification and transubstantiation? Yep, me too. Do you find depth or meaning in faith, whether or not you have a lot of knowledge or experience with it? Do you find meaning in death because you've learned more things over time from other people? I've experienced all of the above throughout my my life, and sometimes I, I experience all of the above all at the same time, exhausted and refreshed and confused and deeply moved. But what's important in all of this is to pay attention to how we're doing, how we're experiencing faith and life in any given moment. Because who we are and what we're going through is a part of how we make meaning. It's a part of how we understand faith. It's a part of how we actively live in the world. And as we're making meaning, we do have options. Like, we're not stuck If we're exhausted, we don't have to keep doing the same things over and over and over again. And the choices we make about what things mean will impact our lives, and they'll impact other people, and they'll impact the world. So will we choose a warrior God, or will we choose a God of compassion who is with us no matter how hard life gets? Will we choose to see a God who causes pain and suffering or a God who is comforting us and healing us? In the name of God, will we exclude or will we welcome in? Will we condemn or will we show grace? Will we hate or will we love? If we're honest, when we open up the Bible, we can see all of that. And we can choose which way we follow. We are a part of what God is doing in and through the Bible. We are a part of what God is doing in and through us and and through the world. We have choices. Which choices will we make? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for our community that helps us to see from so many different angles and from so many different experiences the diversity and beautiful of your character and of your love for us. We pray that your spirit would be at work in us and through us to experience and to reflect your way of love for us and for our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.